Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 236, A Code of Many Colors. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here in our look back episode on this series of episodes that we've done roughly on the question of Jews and race. We've had some really fascinating interviews with folks who are creating organizations that serve or largely serve Jews of color, as well as some organizations that are doing really important social justice and repair work in the world and that are try- trying to drive the Jewish community towards taking on that work as a more significant part of, of the work of Jews. And, and I would say more, more significantly of what it means to be Jewish, or perhaps it's leading in that direction, or perhaps I wanted to be leading in that direction. But before we jump into that conversation, I just want to say, as we often do on these Look Back episodes, that uh, this might be a good opportunity, especially with the high holidays coming up and a lot of organizations are making their high holiday appeals. So uh, the good part about doing a podcast is we can jump in before all of those high holiday services and try to do it a little early. So maybe we can uh, dig a little deeper into your pocket before you've given all the, the money away to the various Zoom congregations that you'll be attending. So uh, we do want to say that we really are only able to do this work thanks to the support of our wonderful listeners. And the support of our wonderful listeners includes moral support. We love the emails that we receive from you and the amazing reviews that you put on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and all that, which we'd love for you to keep doing. But we'd also really appreciate it if you're able in any way to give a small donation or a large donation uh, in in this time of year. We often throw out the idea that uh, if everybody who listened gave $1 for every episode they listened to, we would be in amazing shape as a nonprofit. So if you listen to every week, maybe you give $50 or something like that, and only occasionally something like $18. But the truth is that not everybody gives that dollar. So if you're in a position to give more than that, please know that, that that's really helping subsidize the experience of, of so many people who are really appreciating those experiences a lot. So we really uh, want to make that request at this time of year and, and are grateful for anything that you can do. Yeah, and one thing that we really want to add because of the nature of this unit of episodes is there are other organizations worth supporting right now too, especially organizations by and for Jews of color. They include people that we've talked to like Amud, the, the Jews of Color Torah Academy, like the Jews of Color Initiative, like Tribe Herald, um, even like Never Again Action, which gets at things from a from a different angle. Those have all been conversations in this unit, and we really encourage you to support those as well. Um, and and that that links to something, Dan, that I was excited to talk with you about in this episode, which is, I think that we need to name first off, like, we're two white Jews, and we've been traveling through these conversations and mostly learning, and we're here today and it's just us. But I I wanted to name that, like, not only does that not mean that we are somehow, like, separate from or distant from these organizations, I think it actually means that we have a unique obligation specifically as white Jews to think about how we can support these projects, um, which is kind of counterintuitive sometimes because I think so much of 
our nonprofit ecosystem is based on the conception of like, oh yeah, you're shaped by a project, by a, by a youth group you were a part of, by a camp, by a JCC, by a synagogue, whatever. And then, you know, you pay it forward. You support that project so that it can affect others. And we're calling on folks like ourselves who are, who are not Jews of color to specifically support projects where like, we're not the center. And so I kind of wanted to, to name that because it brings up a lot of questions about like how Jewish nonprofits and how our, Judaism is structured that I figured might be a worthwhile point for us to to dive in today. Yeah, I think it's really worthwhile. I mean, I, I want to uh, affirm what you said about that we're two white Jews and we're talking about this. I When you and I talked a little bit about this question yesterday and just uh, preparing for this show, it, it really did strike me that this idea of, of privilege, and here I don't even really mean white privilege per se, I just mean the kind of privilege of if you are in a world in which the same organizations are continuing for a number of generations, then those organizations are benefiting from the privilege that you just described. That idea that, well, I went to this camp and so I feel really close to it, so I'm going to make a donation. So that's going to put them in a better position to give a great experience to the next generation and then they're going to feel good about it. And and these kind of things snowball. And when you're trying to do any kind of innovation in terms of the organizational landscape, you're always you're always fighting against that or you're always fighting fighting that situation because uh, there's nobody that has had a great experience with your organization before because it didn't exist. And so you're 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 basically doing that initial fundraising based on the promise that your organization will have those great impacts on people. But then you're in the realm basically of philanthropy where you're trying to hope that somebody has the vision to see that future. And I think that folks don't recognize how much of what we call philanthropy is actually, like again, I don't know exactly the definitions, but it's not what I mean by philanthropy when I mean this almost selfless kind of, I want to make the world a better place and so I'm going to be contributing to that. But rather, it's some version of uh, selfish isn't the right word, self-oriented, right? It's saying like there are these organizations, there are these good-hearted organizations that are really wonderful and that mean well and do the right thing. And they really helped me and made my life better. So I want to pay back. That is a very admirable thing, but it makes it really difficult for new organizations to come and address new challenges and and new and growing populations. And it, it's it's really something that all of these organizations are fighting in the face of. And, and I think it's important to recognize that. And, you know, we don't generally come on and say, hey, we would love it if our listeners gave donations to all the organizations that we listen to. Maybe we should, because a lot of organizations, not just because of race, that organizations are in that position. If they're doing anything new spiritually, for example, they, again, won't be in that situation where people have experienced that before. And it's actually a major issue. And we have a series of episodes coming up in a few months on philanthropy. So hopefully we'll explore that. But but it is a really significant and, and interesting point. What we're talking about here. So let's get back to like the, the specifics of these organizations. So we've got Jews of Color focused organizations. And beautifully, we have a huge, we have a, a large number of them that have arisen specifically in the last few years. And of those, because of the the nature of the times we're in, many of them are, are having a light shown on them in a new way that's really exciting and allowing them to grow in a way that really we should have been doing for a long time, but at, at least we are now. So that's good. But I'm flashing to our conversation with Yitz Jordan, where we're not only talking about new organizations, new institutions. We're talking about ways in which, to use the framing you often use, like the thing itself, Judaism itself, 
is experiencing shifts. And we see that in a few ways. One, just the literal people who make up Judaism are changing demographically. We spoke at multiple times in this series about, you know, the number being 15 to 20% of Jews being Jews of color. That is, um, there's always been Jews of color. It's important to name that, but it's certainly not always been 15 to 20% in recent Jewish history has been Jews of color. We could, of course, talk about how, you know, Jews in the Middle East a few thousand years ago were, were not white in the sense that we think of, but like, at the very least in recent Jewish memory, this is a substantial uptick. And so we have to wrestle with like Yitz Jordan's beautiful point about how like he wants a place where kosher mafongo is on the table, where the pieces of Jews of color that are quote unquote, like not Jewish, uh, coming from other people in their family, coming from whatever tradition, like where those pieces are seen as Jewish because they're parts of the lives of people who are Jews. I brought this up with Eric Goldstein when I asked, like, in a sense, if the demography of Jews changes today, where Jews of color are such a large percentage of who we are, like, doesn't that in effect retrospectively make the history of people of color who, are, who weren't Jews, like, doesn't that actually make that sort of Jewish history, even if the people at the time weren't Jews? Like, if we're, if we're talking about how there are more Jews today who are descended from American slavery than there were a few generations ago. Doesn't that mean that when we talk about Judaism and slavery, we have to hold that there are literally people in our congregations, in our spaces, um, and people who haven't been welcomed in our congregations and spaces, but who are Jews, who trace to that element of our history? Like, this isn't just a demographic conversation. This is a what is Judaism, what is Jewish history conversation. And so it matters in the scope of institutions and how we were just talking about it. It means that there are these new projects that don't get to stand on generations of supporters and history as they make their pitches, which makes all of us responsible to help support them, in my view. More than Jewish institutions changing, like the actual Judaism is changing. And we've got to wrestle with that. Like, we're not just like somehow being accepting and allowing people into our tent. Like the tent poles are moving, you know, goal po- like it's it's shifting. Yeah. Well, uh, what you're making me think about is like, let's imagine that some Jew came forward from, you know, not even like biblical times, but even kind of the, the Middle Ages or, you know, the Talmudic time, you know, relatively recent in Jewish history. And and I say that the like, Talmudic times because like these are times when actually the most recent time with like a major work of Jewish, you know, normative, whatever we want to call it, was was written. And if you would have like somebody from the late Talmudic era, like the latest part of that, right, come and sit down at a Passover Seder at our house and we would be serving the meal. And I say at our house, right, because we're Ashkenazi Jews. And we would say, well, here's your first course of matzo ball soup and your second <laughs> course of gefilte fish and your third course is brisket. And this is, these are the things that Ashkenazi American Jews think are as equivalent to Passover as the Haggadah itself. Like yeah. they, they actually think that this is, I mean, I don't mean they think in an ignorant way. I mean, like it is, it is for them. Like yeah. it is the ritual, right? Like you could not serve anything other than brisket on a Passover. People would go crazy, you know, in my family. It's the one meat I eat. All, I eat brisket. On, I'm vegetarian. I eat brisket 
at the first night Seder and I eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Those are my two moments all year that I eat meat because of what you're saying. Yeah, and and I think that I um and I think we've talked about this before in the podcast that I've I even up until relatively recently thought like of all those things, okay, I understand how like brisket is you know not necessarily actually a Jewish food and gefilte fish is you know not actually necessarily a Jewish food, but at least a matzo ball soup. I mean that must be Jewish. It's a matzo ball, right? But it turns out that there, it's a German soup that has a bread ball. So yeah, the fact that it's yeah. matzo and not bread is the Jewish you know element of it. But um, but it, these are all European dishes that in some fashion got either named something Jewish, you know, in, in Yiddish at some point, or you know got a little bit of a modification to to put a little Jewish spin on it. So when Yitz Jordan talks about kosher and mafungo, you know, I think a lot of people hear that as like rhetoric and it's like. Serious but funny, you know, and and just kind of making a point, and you know, and and expressing his true aspiration to be able to find that because he keeps kosher and he likes mafungo, right? But the idea that one day we might come into a time warp and sit down at a seder and people would be serving us some of those things, like I think people don't take it seriously, and and why I say all that is that. The future of the it's like the future of the Jewish past. I think wasn't that like the subtitle of Yehuda Kirchner's book or something like that? Where where right. we're going to be looked back on as these people who had those kind of lame Passover seders with this weird fish and you know a floating piece of you know matzo mushed up, and they're like, why didn't they eat these wonderful spices and these wonderful things? You know, and what's weird about it is like the resistance to change. In this case, and and I think almost always, it, it turns out that the joke's on the resistors, you know. And so it's it's almost it becomes kind of tragic to be living in this time. Although I suppose all times are like this in some way, where you know if we really sit without our sentimental attachments and and everything, and say, well, what's the future going to look like? Uh, and you know, then then I think we're going to see that all of these things that our guests have been talking about, this is the future. Whatever you believe about how many Jews of color there are today, or how many there were ten years ago, there are going to be a lot, a lot more in the future. And part of this podcast is about you know thinking about that future. And you know, I love the idea that it's going to have better spaces. So I'll actually go even further. First off, um, I'm uh, I, there's lots of discourse online about like gefilte fish shaming, and like we're not here to say gefilte fish is some terrible thing. I happen to not love it personally, but like I, yeah, like, I don't, I don't uh, like uh, it. But I do think that gefilte, like I don't want us to come off as like we're saying this is like unequivocally terrible. Um, there's lots of good Ashkenazi no, no, food, no, um, and I know Dan, you didn't mean to like be saying that, which is part of why yeah. I'm clarifying. But um, what I'm yeah. trying to say is that it was as much an innovation as as this was. Right, but, right? Yeah, but, but like there's two things I want to say. One, I will actively be sad if there's, the, I mean, I won't do that time warp thing, but if I were to do that time warp thing in 200 years from now, it was still the same foods, like I will actively be sad for a few, it, like it's not that I'm like a self-hating Ashkenazi or something and I want all my Ashkenazi stuff to go away, but that will reflect some things. That will mean that we didn't do sufficient work to redefine Jewish foodways, Jewish uh, ritual, Jewish everything, Judaism, to actually reflect the breadth and depth of our Jewish society. Because what's clear is in 200 years, the people who make up Judaism will 100 like like will 100% be different. So if our foodways don't catch up to that, that just means that the resistors won, and I will not be happy about that. And that will mean that in my view, we've done a poor job of actually opening up everything from our foodways to our communities to, to be welcoming. And the other thing I'd say, and I know that you also would probably agree with this, but like you mentioned that 
those aren't Jewish foods. And like, we've talked about this with people in the past, with Rachel Gross, with others. Like, in my view, it's not like brisket is a Jewish food. And and we need yeah. to, and the reason we need to say that is because what we're getting at is origins don't define Jewishness. Yes. Because, because if brisket's not a Jewish food, then the obvious takeaway from that has to be that the mafongo is also not a Jewish food, even though, and like, our whole point is like, stuff can originate in Poland or in the Caribbean or in anywhere and it can not be uniquely Jewish, but then it can become Jewish. This actually ties to the conversation we had um, at the end of our last unit where we were talking about how like if if we saw COVID as an anti-Semite, like we'd all be fighting COVID much better as Jews because we seem to be very good at fighting things that are specifically hateful of Jews, but because COVID kills lots of people most of whom are not Jews, we don't think of it as like a specifically Jewish problem, even though there's like way more Jews being affected by COVID right now um, and dying to COVID than are right now dying to like anti-Semitism. Not that there aren't also Jews who have died from anti-Semitism. That's an important point to make. But like- You mean non-COVID anti-Semitism. Right, yeah. Um, But so to tie it back, like we need to do that same work with the food stuff. We, We need to say like, just because a food is not only Jewish, that doesn't make it not Jewish. Like challah, there's nothing originally Jewish about challah. You mentioned matzah ball soup. We could go like every Jewish food and we could find the origins. And so like if we recognize that in a, in a deep way and we recognize the importance of that, which is that, oh, a set of people took their culture's stuff and they, they Jewified. They said, okay, Shabbat bread is now challah because that's our bread. And so we're, and, and they built deep meaning around that. I mean, braiding challah is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, it's, and it's like, I don't mean to trivialize it. I think people think that that's what this is. Like, no, we need to be actively looking at the new stuff and saying, oh, how could Mafongo in a hundred years, like, how could we drash? How could we come up right. with like a Jewish story for like why this food is at anything from a Shabbat table to a Seder to whatever? Like, how can we draw this back into the story? And I think that feels inauthentic to people. It feels like, oh, you're making something up. But the, the secret is every single one of these things is made up. Like we we decided to make certain foods have symbolic meaning and tie them to Jewish stories. And then we did it. And so right. we should be doing that now. And um. And to, to draw this to the actual point, like we should be looking at how, and I don't want to play the game of like secret Jewish history, like forward articles of like finding the Jewish angle, uh-huh. but like on some level, we should be saying, okay, these people who, who trace their, their genealogy, not only to European Jews, um, some of them do trace their genealogy almost exclusively to Jews, by the way, but like we need to be saying, okay, all parts of that person are Jewish stories. It's not that they have a Jewish story and also this other part of them that is separate. One person experiences those simultaneously. And so trying to separate them out and saying, oh, no, this is your Jewish self and this is your black self or your of color self. Like, I, I'm not asked to do that with my ancestry as a Jew. I'm not right. asked to, like, name Kugel as a, as a white food, even right. though it totally was a European food. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, it's the opposite, right? You're expected not to do yeah. that. You're you're expected to say that this is just a Jewish food. I, I think I, I want to say a few things. One is that this whole discussion about food is a metaphor, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're using it's not we're not, actually not the most important thing in the world. But so I want to connect it to another thing that's less of a metaphor. And then I want to talk a little bit about how that change happens. Um, I, I want to just make this metaphor a little bit closer to something that's not food, although it doesn't directly relate to race. But we've been working on some workshops about the high holidays, you know, helping people reimagine the high holidays in different ways. And as one of the ways of empowering people to reimagine uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur more more radically, you know, I've shared with them this history that that actually it's fascinating that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not mentioned as hol- as those holidays. Like some the dates are a little bit mentioned, but they're not mentioned as those holidays anywhere in the Bible other than the Torah. Now, the 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 if you could say, oh well, that means they were the most ancient because the Torah is the most ancient. But according to to biblical academic scholars, the Torah was actually uh, put into its final form very late, and so most of the Bible was in in uh, closer to final form before the Torah. So when there's something that's only in the Torah but not anywhere else in the Bible, that means that that thing is mo- is more likely than not a late edition. So what I'm saying is like the thing that you think is like the most ancient Yom Kippur. You know, I mean, how could that be? You know, it's actually that itself was an innovation. And and when we start to see it that way, it's not to say that you shouldn't therefore love Yom Kippur. And that's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't mean you shouldn't love gefilte fish or you shouldn't love Ashkenazi customs. It's that you should recognize that those beloved Jewish customs had a period before when they weren't beloved Jewish customs. And in fact, when somebody would have suggested that we eat this at a Jewish holiday, they would have said, why would we eat a you know, non-Jewish food at a Jewish holiday. Like, why would we have brisket at a Jewish holiday? Like, you know, actually Passover is a good example because, you know, the, the tradition is to have a lamb. So what are you talking about? We're having a cow. Lamb is the, the most ancient. Does that mean it's the right? Does that mean it, it it's the only? You know, of course not. And so what does it mean to, to fully embrace those changes those innovations happening in our time. And this brings me to my third point, and, and it's the how. And, and I think this is where we want to spend some time on thinking about these organizations that are created by and for Jews of color. A lot of white Jews, um, there's some real desire to say, oh, we want to we want to integrate Jews of color into these larger Jewish communities. That's a wonderful thing to do. And it absolutely is. And yet, there's also a wonderfulness to the capacity to spend time in a different space, in in one's own space. And a lot of that creativity can happen better in those spaces. Why? I think in part because even if the majority, the in this case, you know, European descent Jews majority, thinks that they're being warm and embracing, there's often a kind of uh, pressure and even an unintentional pressure to say, yeah, but this is how we do things here. You know, this is this is the way. I mean, this is, you know, it's not even ideological. It just is. You know, and, and in a world like that, it's very difficult to get to the point where mafungo becomes a symbolic Jewish food. That's not how it happened in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, everybody was Eastern European, you know, meaning like, like it was, it was just like a huge version of Tribe Herald or a mood, you yeah. know. It was right, and and so it's a different time and it's a different situation. But we've seen it analogously in the LGBT world, which I think is important to talk about. Savara, right? Our very first interview was Benay Lappy, because something wondrous has been happening and and happened in the LGBT world over the last. 
few uh, decades. And so many new elements of Judaism were kind of worked through in that world from a, a particular orientation and have started to leak out now and have started to kind of get the attention of straight Jews, you know, for example, and that are like, oh, this is really great. Well, yeah, it's really great because we, we're working on it for 30 years, you know? And and so that's the that's the question is like how to really embrace the, the idea that Jews of color, uh, you know, are, are doing that work right now. Yeah, but the LGBT world 30 years ago also wasn't getting mass Jewish support in the way that it should correct, have. Correct. Um, and people were actively resisting ordaining people like B'nai Lappi. Right. And there were still policies on the books where she had to be in the closet. Like, we should learn from that, right? right? Like, we Absolutely, should, like, It's right. not just that they were early in the stage and, like, learning how to create. Like, there were, there were lots of great ideas already. Right. But there were active forces that made them marginal and not centered in Jewish life because the project was seen as, oh, we have our institutions. And, like, yeah, maybe we'll sort of be accepting. But I, I don't think there – like, I think there's less resentment now – than there once was about like wait why'd you set up those separate gay and lesbians they were they were they were yeah. LNG synagogues at first like they mm-hmm. weren't mm-hmm. trans right. synagogues at first so I don't want to retroject that on right. but like they were setting up these separate things and basically saying to Jewish institutions like we need something separate and now I think there's more of an understanding that like okay yeah people need spaces that are really for and by them um, I don't think that was the story everywhere I think there was some resentment by people that thought they were accepting and were like why can't you just join our stuff oh well I, I was thinking you were going in another direction and and I'm I'm wondering and I mean we should have this conversation with folks but like I, like my interpretation of the LG and you're right LG and then eventually LGBTQ uh, world was that many Jewish institutions didn't want them you know and so they set up yeah. these these separate spaces, not because they wanted to, but because they weren't welcomed in the other. So I'm actually right. concerned right. a little bit that we'll learn, not the wrong lesson, but that we'll overlearn the lesson from that and say, well, now that now that most people say, well, that was wrong, we shouldn't have been doing that. You know, we should have welcomed them from the beginning. Um, and if that had happened, there might not have been all these LGBTQ spaces that were created. N- no way saying we should any that white Jewish spaces or, or just that they should be anything other than the most welcoming. So it's not yeah. that, but it's saying, let's also make sure that we see the value of the LGBTQ spaces right. and invest in those. Yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate the clarification. That's absolutely where I'm going. And what I'm getting at is I think even among people who are well-meaning who and who may have been well-meaning, maybe not, I think if we're talking about 1983 versus 1993 versus 2003 on the LGBT Jewish conversation like there's drastically different things on each of those yeah i was thinking of people who like probably later in the game like we're actually interested in creating a better more welcoming jewish universe for lgbtq jews and yes the, their instinct was oh it's it kind of bums me out that there's these separate things because i want to strengthen i, I want to build, you know, classical synagogues, classical JCCs, classical federations, whatever, that are open to those. And yeah, I'm. that's where I'm getting to is that's not the impulse I think we need to have. And more than that, the people that are embedded in those institutions or supportive of those institutions, whatever, need to explicitly recognize that like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that isn't us that's starting right now. And we, our role, like we do have a role with them, which is to say, do your do your thing. Like mm-hmm. I listened to Amud talk about those Jews, those Jews of color Torah conversations, and they mentioned the story of Pinchas, which is a story I've like thought about a lot. And they brought up 
related but different angles on that story that only would come up in their space. We gotta, we gotta recognize that like the spaces that don't have me in them, specifically because they don't have me in them, yep. are so necessary and so powerful for anybody who recognizes a collective Jewish anything. Anybody who claims a connection to peoplehood, to nationhood, to and by the way, those are complex layered things, and that we've we've, talk, we've talked about them in the past. But like anybody who claims a connection to Judaism in its diversity, in its you know trans geographic bigness across cultures, we got to actively want to to help the cultures that aren't ours. And I think that's often taken this paternalistic lens of like, yeah, you know, I'm interested in other cultures, but I'm like American Jewish institutions, like, yeah, we want to help the diaspora, but we sort of see ourselves as this savior role. And like, oh, there are these small Jewish communities in wherever in the world, in South America, in Asia, in Europe, and we're going to like help teach them the ways of how we do it. But that's teaching our ways. And with Juan Mejia, we talked about this. With other, like, The project is you will only soar to the heights that you need to soar and create the things that in 300 years will be, oh my gosh, I never knew Judaism was any other way. Like Jews of Color projects can only do that when they are allowed to do that without me. And that doesn't mean that I have to like look the other way and have no role with them. That means I should give, I should throw them a donation. I should amplify their existence to people who are Jews of color so they can join. Like we do have a role. It's just like a very different kind of role. I have like two worrying impulses at the same time, right? One is to like absolutely affirm everything that you're talking about and say, right, this is a a unique, uh, specific issue for Jews of color and we should do everything that you just said. And I also want to play that itself out as a metaphor and say, you know, this is the way that Judaism is always, this is the tradition, you know, that <laughs> that anything that is just trying to be some big blob of whatever, and that thinks it's going to last forever, doesn't, you know, the only, th the things that last are the things that are alive and that are, have infusions of new, new approaches to, and that when you're talking about human beings, you know, it's, I mean, maybe this is part of like the genius complex that the Jewish community has, you know, it sort of imagines that some Moses is going to come along with some big idea. That's how things are going to change. You know, Mordecai Kaplan's going to come along. I don't know, you know, and maybe <laughs> sometimes change happens that way where somebody just has a big idea, but often it happens when there's a big group of people with an idea. And often this is not a good thing, it comes when a big group of people who were previously marginalized finally gains enough momentum. Uh, but women is the easy uh, example of that. And we're about to do a series on, on women. That at the point at which women kind of say, hey, we want to do something different here, they actually do have the numbers. So that that's a way. You know, another way is is when you find a voice, you know, and when you just sort of get loud enough. And that could be because of numbers, but it could also be because of passion. And sometimes voice comes from being able to spend a lot of time together, you know, in our, in, in a space that where, where our voice gets louder and louder and amplifies and feels like some of that's going on. And now the question is like, hopefully, right. Hopefully in 30 years from now, we'll have, you know, this podcast will still be going on and we'll be talking about that great Jews of color breakthrough, just like the LGBTQ, you know, we'll say like, and now it's like, you know, yesterday's news, but then we shouldn't rest. Like then what's next? Yeah. Well, I, I want to like synthesize this into a broader point which so you brought up women and like there's 
when we look at history, I mean, we, we're going to be talking about this in the unit you just described, that we're going to have some amazing conversations um, with Jewish women. But like when you decide that women are part of the story, Jewish history and every kind of history, and this is not news to anyone listening, like I'm sure we like when you decide that the story is going to include women, all of a sudden, when you look at the 1800s, you can't just look at the people holding elected office and battling in wars because turns out the people holding elected office and fighting in wars were almost exclusively men so if you if you want to have any kind of like when you decide that jewish women exist um which uh, spoiler alert jewish women exist all of a sudden oh yeah huh we should have in our textbooks about history forgetting jews for a second like huh yeah we should have some stuff about what people were doing at home <laughs> huh we should have some stuff about child rearing we should have some stuff like yeah this stuff that people do in their lives that exists history books weren't talking about like it's it's so ludicrous to me i'm like being disrespectful to my predecessors who like learned it but like it's so ludicrous to me that you could like create the I, and my biases are showing here because like i'm constantly talking about finding meaning in sports and finding meaning in pop culture and finding and like i've been deeply influenced by the whole project of ah when you decide that like women are part of the story different different realms come to mind when you decide that it's not just the politicians, but it's also people doing, quote unquote, you know, social things. And that's also history. Oh, sports, huh? We should have something about sports in our history textbooks. They were around 100 years ago and mattered. It's like, we got to be saying to ourselves, we've been telling the past wrong. We've been telling the present wrong. And we're looking toward the future in the wrong ways. When you have this preservation mindset of Judaism, where you're like, oh, we have to save the Jewish stuff we've received from our predecessors, and it's this set of stuff. And, by, and when we name that stuff, it's always the stuff that was given to us by European white men. And it's not that we're like consciously saying that other groups don't matter, but like when your project is preserving Jewish textual tradition, when your project is preserving Jewish history that has centered the voices of people that are that are giving words from lecterns and from like public square, like when that's what you do. You just reinscribe that history and you don't allow for a flowering of newness. And so we we like with every holiday, with every ritual, with every everything, if we're only thinking about like, oh my gosh, what will happen if in 50 years or 100 years people forget about this? What would happen if in 100 years on Simchat Torah, you know, the holiday at the end of Sukkot, like people don't march around with Torahs? Like I'd be sad about that. I would absolutely be sad about that. I think it's a great ritual. I think it's simple. Like you open up the whole scroll and then you dance around with the Torah. It's like a nice embodied thing. But like, okay, so we want to preserve that. But like, do I actually think that Simchat Torah has like maximized its meaning? Do I think that we couldn't add way better, deeper versions of Simchat Torah? Like, of course I think we could. I think we've we've settled too much. And I think that the voices that are likely to bring that are people who haven't been included and centered in like the rituals we've done for Simchat Torah for the past thousand years. By the way, Simchat Torah is a great example. It's nowhere in the Torah. It only has existed for like a thousand years. It, it's not mentioned even in Talmud. Simchat Torah is a very late creation. Um, it and every other moment are ones where we should be thinking like, how do we add to this relatively new thing and not how do we preserve this ancient perfect custom? One thing that I wanted to bring up in light of what you were saying is this question of counting. Because 
you know, there's been some controversy. We talked a little bit about it with Alana Kaufman, but there's this controversy about, you know, how many Jews of color are there? And, you know, what? we don't need to get into it. There's all kinds of things coming up. You know, is it, uh, how are they counting, whatever. One of the things that, that I want to ask is, Almost what difference does it make? In meaning like it does make a difference. I'm not saying it doesn't make a difference, but I want to raise a question of like, what if it didn't make a difference? Meaning that I think when people say, a lot of the people that are asking this question are like, well, if there's 10% of Jews or Jews of color, then we should probably devote 10% of the resources towards them. And if they're 15%, then we should devote 15% of the resources. And it's like, why should we uh, devote resources that way? Because the implicit, and hopefully we'll get to this in our philanthropy conversations as well, but I think the implicit drive of much of Jewish philanthropy is keep the Jews Jewish. So if there's 10% mm-hmm. of Jews of a certain kind, we should make sure to, that it stays 10%. And, um, and, and there are two... There's a number of ways that that is wrongheaded. One way is to say, but wait a second, we shouldn't be asking how many of uh, those kinds of Jews are there right now. We should be asking how many will there be in some period of time, at, at least that. So if it, so maybe there's 10% of Jews of color now, but our futurology says there's going to be 25% in, in 30 years. Well, okay, there's an argument for devoting 25% of the resources to that. I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. But I think an even more profound way of thinking about it, and it harks back to what we were talking about earlier, is like, uh, how can I put this exactly? If the goal is not keep all the Jews Jewish, but the goal is to keep Judaism as compelling as it can possibly be, then if we believe, as we were talking about, that it's really these infusions of of new new things, new to the majority, you know, to, uh, that's that comes from a particular experience, the LGBT experience, the Jews of color experience. And we know that that's where the future of Judaism is coming from, not of Jews, of Judaism. That's what's going to make sure Judaism doesn't turn into some boring thing that nobody wants to participate in, but is an exciting thing that lots of people want to participate in, then maybe that's the reason why we should be over-investing in various uh, heretofore marginalized Jewish communities, because that's actually where the creativity comes from. The issue is not only that we're not counting Jews correctly or well or whatever, it's that we actually don't have a theory of innovation and change that's driving any of this work. And so that counting issue, as important as it is, is also a symptom of a larger problem, which is what this whole podcast has been about from the beginning, which is a staling of Judaism, you know, a kind of a a, a sense where the, the powers that be and the large institutions, like they're just, in my opinion, you know, they're they're after the wrong thing because they're after some version of preservation as, a, as opposed to some version of life. It's as if we started to, and I'm sure I've used this metaphor before, it's as if we were, you know, in search of the fountain of youth rather than working on, you know, fertility drugs. I always want to point people, it's so ridiculous to me when people frame in the way that you just described, like, oh, if there's 10%, then we should allocate 10%. Or or really even more when when people say like, oh, you know, it's roughly a small minority. It, it's a group that's much less than the majority. So like, ultimately, we shouldn't care so much about that. We should, we should privilege the majority. And I always want to remind people like, you know, Jews are 2% of America, right? Like, (laughs) if, if our country functioned with that mindset, Mm -hmm. that you're Mm -hmm. arguing for, every time somebody argues that Abraham Joshua Heschel should be in the Selma movie, or that a Jewish voice should be included on the interfaith panel or that like 
you don't get to make those arguments anymore. I, by the way, I make those. Uh, I, I, the Selma thing is its own. But like, I, I do make many arguments that like it's important in any society to look specifically to marginal groups, including, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% groups and look to elevate those voices because even though they are small, they matter. And if you spend your time in this majoritarian viewpoint, you just get Christian hegemony, Christian hegemony, Christian hegemony, white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. You just get all of the problems that we can look at. So if we as Jews recognize that, how can we then within Jewish life be like, oh, they're just kind of a small group. Most of the people here want it this other way. It's silly. Like, and by the way, if if we were to look at the history of American collegiate institutions, like they did this explicit, they they had quotas. They they had quotas of how many Jews could be at that institution. They were worried that the culture of that institution would change too much if too many Jews were there. We can talk about Harvard. We can talk about yeah, like these actually had documentable quotas that I assume most of us would think are bad. And these were like 10% quotas at some of these places. Jews were never close to 10% of the population. It still bothers me, and I hope it bothers others, that institutions would set a threshold where like they're not allowed to be beyond that threat. Like, how can we then say, like, up, oh, they're 15%. So, like, we shouldn't let that stuff take too much of our time and effort and money away from, you know, the core Jewish community. No, we need a constant understanding that margins matter and that margins, when empowered, are precisely the ones who go far beyond their numbers to create the changes that we want to see. Jews of color are a realm of American Jews who have for so long been placed in that marginal role and we've got real teshuva to do. We've got yep. real repair work to do if if we're actually going to catch up to where we already should be in terms of the ways they've changed Judaism. Like, I'm sad that we aren't already at a place where Juneteenth is marked in every Jewish community in the country where where we recognize if even, you know, six or 10 percent or whatever, like whatever number are specifically black Jews which is a bigger number than many expect, like where we recognize that makes it, that means we have to recognize this Jewishly. We had some of our earliest Juneteenth ideas this year under COVID, which I'm thrilled about, but we've got catch up. Like we got to see it as catch up work. Like this already should exist. Not, oh, we're doing this like nice thing to transcend beyond our white dominated institutions. Absolutely. And and with an eye on the clock, I, I just want to say, like, I think we've spent a lot of this time talking about the the value of what Jews of color can be, you know, doing if we are willing to support these by by us for us spaces and all that. But I want to also make sure that we say really explicitly, and this is why we had last week's episode with Eric Goldstein, that for Jews of European descent, there's really something to think about very deeply about this question of privilege and the possibility that. In the way that Jews have absorbed a lot of things from the societies and cultures that Jews have lived in, and we're talking about, you know, food ways, but there's a lot of other things that they absorb as well. And it would be no surprise that uh, Jews of European descent would be absorbing from America, 
not the good things like, you know, being more open to diversity or having Juneteenth or whatever, but the really bad things. And I'm not talking about, you know, virulent racism, although there's some of that as well. And we could point to some folks that are in government, but the much more, you know, passive thing that when we talk about the Holocaust, for example, that we say, you know, the banality of evil or, you know, just the people that kind of just went along, you know, there's just this sense that, um, well, that's a problem that America has, but thankfully we Jews, you know, at least we're not in that problem or something, you know, as opposed to that's how it starts. And, and that's how I, I think I, I've heard older Jews talking at, at different times in, in the past. But generation after generation, it starts to get absorbed in the water in a new way. And without intending to, my concern is that a lot of Jewish institutions have absorbed white privilege in a way that they are so unconscious of that it's the worst thing to be unconscious of it because then you don't even think that you're that you're a part of it and that you're not doing anything to change it because you don't even see you see that as somebody else's problem those are racists we're not racists we love heschel you know wh whatever and that and when you're talking about systemic racism and when you're talking about privilege there's this thing that like if you if what you're saying is that like we whenever the uh, America more generally talks about this 2% of Jews in a way that says, oh, that's an insignificant minority population and, and Jews get their hackles up about it and they're very upset. And just like you said, and, and yet we turn around and do the same thing by trying to, you know, talk about what would be the implications if the number of Jews of color was actually smaller than this or that demographer is saying, we're doing the same thing. That's privilege. That's not recognizing that you're part of the problem, not only the lack of part of the solution, you know, and, and I think that until we, we really, uh, and, and like you said, repair and reckoning, you know, we're seeing this with all of America, I think, in the last few weeks and months. And, and, and I think that um, rather than just kind of being proud, and I am proud of Jews who have been participating in the larger, uh, in the larger movements in America, but, but I'd really like to see uh, some of those Jews come back and and you know do that work within the Jewish community as well because it it needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so that's the note we're going to end on. This is not over. <laughs> the conversation isn't over and the work isn't over. But um, this episode is over. Um, we got to close it out, unfortunately. And um, just one more call, like at the top of the episode, for folks to you know support our work. We really appreciate everything that you can do on that front, but really to to think about the ways that you can support these organizations we've spoken to, to head to those websites of organizations like Amud, Jews of Color Initiative, Tribe Herald, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Think about the roles you can play there. And, and also just, you know, to the extent you can, beyond money, think about how you can play a role in your community in progressing this conversation forward, doing the work of making our communities um, more reflective and more empowering of all the Jews who are part of Judaism. So that's the note we're going to end on. Uh, we hope that you will be in touch with us with any thoughts, any questions, any comments. Um, and there's a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can also check out Jewish Live, our other Facebook page. You can go to our Twitter feed, which is at Judaism Unbound. You can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Right now, we have our Elul Unbound initiative that is underway there, and we encourage you to be a part of that. And last but not least, we hope that you will hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We love getting notes from listeners. So 
that's the close of this unit. We really hope that it's only been a starting point for more deeply considering questions and, and issues facing our Jewish community around Jews of color. But with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>